0: The reading for today is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places.
1: All right, thank you, Laura. Good morning, Redemption. How you guys doing? Good to see you. Uh, my name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, but as uh, you heard Eric, our host today, say, uh, Redemption Church is one church with nine congregations. And as such, we have a lead pastor over all nine congregations, and that's Tyler Johnson. And once a year, at least, I like to have him come in and preach so that um, you all don't forget who he is and that, w- and that he doesn't forget who we are as well. Uh, but I get to meet with Tyler uh, once a month with all the other uh, lead pastors and very often during the preaching collectives as as well. But we're glad he's here today. so he's going to be doing um, our message. By way of introduction, I just want to give you a little bit of history and legacy. Um, it was really Tyler that that God gave the vision to in terms of uh, that that merger that happened. Um, almost eight years ago between East Valley Bible Church and Praxis Church. You heard Tina mention Praxis Church. Uh, it was East Valley Bible Church and the two campuses of Praxis Church that merged together to become Redemption Church. Uh, Tyler felt that, uh, Tyler was working at East Valley at the time and he felt that we could be better together and that has been uh, borne out. And, and now we have nine congregations throughout uh, Arizona um, and, and it, it has been a, a wonderful work of God that, that, that uh, Tyler and now all of us have been able to be a part of. So in introducing Tyler, though, I, I sent him a text, and I said, tell, tell me something that nobody knows about you that I can share, and he texts back immediately and said, I don't like the U of A, and I said, <clears throat> yeah, see, we had claps in the first service, boos in the second service. That's really interesting. So I said, I think Anybody who knows you already knows that. uh, Tyler pitched for ASU, so he's big into ASU. So I said, all right, give me this. Uh, What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite fast food? And who's your favorite baseball player of all time? So his favorite movie is Hidden Figures. Really good movie. Anybody seen Hidden Figures? That's a really good movie. Uh, His favorite fast food is Chick-fil-A, which demonstrates he's never been in a jack-in-the-box before, and his... His favorite baseball player is Daryl Strawberry. Anybody remember Daryl Strawberry? Yeah, isn't it, isn't it? you're gonna to have to talk to him, I think. So, yeah, so Daryl, I like Daryl Strawberry. Uh, one other thing, Tyler and I do share one thing in common. We were both collegiate athletes. I wanna point that out. He played baseball at ASU, and of course, I was on the speech and debate team at Grand Canyon University. And so, please welcome Tyler on up here.
2: So, Frank said, um, The reason I'm here is so that you don't forget me and I don't forget you. So either I'm very forgettable or you are very forgettable, and I tend to lean to the latter. I think you guys are more forgettable than I am. That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, people are sitting there like, Is he serious? So, I appreciate it, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 18 through 20, so if you want to open your Bibles there, we're going to look there and in Acts chapter 6, but if you'd open up to Ephesians chapter 6, and if you're like, open up what, then open up your phone and type into Google, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 18, this is the end of a section on the whole armor of God that was just read in its... Uh, entirety, the section was, to provide context to where we are now. But Paul says this, and it sounds like this is a passage kind of like, why would they take these two verses and then preach a whole message on it? It feels like Paul's kind of at the back end of what he's saying. He's made this statement, pray at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Then he says this, which is on the screen, to that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I'm going to ask most of you, and some of you are this age, but when you go back to when you learn, you are taught, I should say, how to read. Good English teachers, especially if you're reading um, a narrative, will say to you, try to get into the story. Try to get into the story and inhabit the characters. Any great movie does that. uh, Any great novel does that. But even as you're reading nonfiction, the more you can get into the author's bones and begin to think what they're thinking or the way they're thinking or feel what they're feeling really begins to help. So if you look at this and you take that as a principle and you go, what is Paul thinking and feeling? I'm certain that the emotion in which he sends, to that end, keep alert, is not just to that end, keep alert. And then he says, with all perseverance, which he needs and he knows all of his readers, including you and I today, need this exhortation, this calling to persevere. For he says at the end of this that he's in chains. He's in prison for what he's preaching. So this message of perseverance is one that he needs and one he knows that we need. But if we get into his bones, fundamentally, he's making a call to those who are reading this at the actual time they receive the letter and to us today to do two things, to pray and to proclaim. To pray and to the word announce could be, or to proclaim could be announced. This is where we get the word preaching, and it's specifically related to the gospel. So I have four kids. Uh, Brayden will turn 13 next week. Yale's 11, Lucy's 7, and Harmony 6. Harmony, my youngest daughter, has these massive quads, and she's very fast. Like from the time she could start walking, she was like three, and she'd run around the house, and it was like she was a Mini Cooper. Like the car, like you'd be like, she's going to hit a wall, and then she'd just turn, right? And she was fast. And then as she got a bit older, she'd race against her older brothers and many times beat them or be like toe-to-toe with them. So I'm always like, Harmony, you have to do track. Your thighs are like explosive in power, right? Right? You got to do track, but she's more artistic. Well, my daughter, Lucy, is in gymnastics. And let me just say this about gymnastics. If you're a parent, young, with daughters thinking about gymnastics, or sons for that matter, if you want to stay above the poverty line, don't do gymnastics. (laughs) Because it is ridiculously expensive. And they charge parents like $15 to get into a meet. We just had that yesterday. But Lucy, it's the same kind of thing. Her legs being strong help her, and her core being strong the boys, when they learn about baseball, pitching and hitting, you'll have these moments where you're like, what is the biggest muscles in your body? When you ask that to little kids, every time they say, show me your muscles, they go like this. "Ah." But when you say, but what are the strongest, biggest muscles in your body? They'll go like this and you go, no, no, no. Just think about which are the biggest. Is this bigger or is this bigger? And they'll go, oh, this is bigger. So now when they're 13 and 11 and you're trying to teach them to hit, you're like, use your legs, use the ground, which is true in any sport. Use your legs, use the ground when you're pitching. So in this image, Paul is saying this. If you don't use the two-pronged strength and explosive power of prayer and announcing, proclamation, proclamation. You in the end, and we in the end, as Redemption Arcadian Redemption Church at large, can be guilty of what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy when he talks to Timothy and he says, hey, there are these people who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, we can deny the power by denying fundamental tenets of the gospel, like the resurrection from the dead, but we practically, here and now, right now, neglect the power of God when we neglect prayer. And we neglect the simplicity, and Paul talks about the foolishness of just saying what God's done, of saying who God is and what he's done. So my desire today is, like a good English teacher, to get you behind inside the bones of Paul of when he says this, it isn't to throw away comment, be praying at all times for all of the saints, for he knows they're struggling. And it isn't just a throwaway comment when he says, pray that I would have doors open to me, that words would be given to me and opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. If you get into Paul's head and you get into his bones and his emotions, there's a way he views the world, which is much more comprehensive than many of us, which leads to emotions that he feels to a point of saying, pray that words would be given to me. And they give rationale for why he believes so deeply to even be put in prison for what he believes. But his vision, I would submit to you, is way more comprehensive. It's far more whole, if you will. So you know if you ever go out to eat and you go out with a foodie, and they're like, I'm going to take you to an amazing restaurant. This is one of the best chefs in all of Arizona and you're excited, like, I'm going to go, I'm going to eat, and you go out with a foodie, and then they're like, what do you want to order? And you're like, I want the skirt steak. You know, it says it has mashed potatoes, and you're thinking, this is going to be amazing. And then they come out, and it's like a plate, and then there's like this much food. And you're like looking at it, you're like, skirt steak? Like, that's not a steak. That's like a shaving off of the side of a, barely the side of a cow. Like, I was looking for steak right? And hoping it was big as a skirt, right? But it's, it's like tiny. And you go, it's too small. Well, here's what I'm convinced Paul would say to all of us. Your gospel is far too small. And the reason many of you think that the faith isn't applicable to your everyday life and the complex questions that you have, or the realities of the challenges of our society is because you don't understand the gospel the way Paul preached the gospel. You think in the end, Jesus came to die for the bad things you did that you shouldn't have done, and he did. But he died for much more than that, and this book is spoken about that all over. So my desire to get into the head of Paul is to help us all today to understand this. The gospel is a solution to sin. If you've been around the church at all, you understand that Christians talk about sin, but you have to understand sin is multidimensional. Here are the four dimensions of sin that Paul understands, that there's a cosmic dimension, a societal dimension, an individual dimension, and an ecclesial. Now, the only reason I said ecclesial is because I don't know how to say churchial, but ecclesial means church. The top three are what theologians and Bible teachers have called the unholy trinity, So the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the unholy Trinity is the world, the flesh, and the devil, or in this order, the devil, the world, and the flesh. So let me just briefly say this. The last two weeks of this series have taught this, so you could go back and listen to them, but let me just make a simple statement and then help all of us who struggle with it. Here's the simple statement. The devil is real. Now I know if you're kind of intellectual or you're a, you're a really wise modern person you're like geez, that's like middle, medieval conception the devil's real. Okay if you're in here and you don't believe this at whatever level you're not a christian or you know in your mind you're a you're a highly informed christian which is why you don't believe it. Well regardless if you don't believe or you do believe you and I both along with Jews, um, maybe secular Jews, believing Jews, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, nuns, whatever category you would want, we all live in a world where things so horrific happen that you have to answer the question, why? And what in the world is this? I mean, horrific things. Things that come out on the news, things that you know, stories that you begin to hear about how fathers treated their daughters or sons treated their fathers or the way individual people treat other people that's so horrific and so deep, you're like, that isn't just a mistake, that's evil. Well, what's evil? How do you give an account for why evil's in the world or what is in the world? I believe wholeheartedly that the Bible gives the best account of reality. That there's a world that was created hundred percent by God, and there was many created things, and some of those created things were angels. and there was a rebellion, a coup within the heavenlies in which this angel named Lucifer, in his pride and ego, tried to challenge the authority of God. Now that just so you know, regardless of who you are, that's not a good move. When you challenge the authority of God, here's a simple result: you lose 100 percent of the time, right? God is. Not 55 and 5, right? He's 60 and 0. There's no reason for those numbers. There hasn't actually been 60 battles. I'm just saying he's undefeated, okay? God's undefeated. But the devil created havoc in the world because of his pride. C.S. Lewis, you guys know that name, C.S. Lewis, made a statement that it was through pride that Lucifer became the devil. Self is a radical curving inward, whether that's in the angelic realm or it's in the human realm. But it created chaos because Adam and Eve believed this lie and it spread everywhere and it fractured the whole entire world. So if you want to understand sin, understand it as fracturing, as twisting, as distorting, as separating that, with that which God made to be one. So a very important verse in the book of Ephesians is Ephesians 1.10 that says in the fullness of time, God's work and God's commitment is to unite some things in heaven and earth. Is that what it says? Come on, help me here. Anybody that knows, does it say unite some things? It says all things. Why would God be after the unification of all things? Because he created all things and he doesn't lose. So there's a cosmic rebellion. So 1 John 3, 8 says, the son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil and the lies that we believe that he promotes through fear, hear this, the lies, he operates in a language of lies through the emotion of fear that we believe are, is why our world begins to turn diabolical, devilish, and separates at every level. So that leads to societal, the world. Now, this is very important because the Bible talks about the world in this way. Don't love the world or the things of the world. But then also it says, God so loved the world. But the world that's spoken of in don't love the world or the things of the world is the system that believes the lies of the devil that leads to the building of families and institutions and policies. And this is what creates this huge division right now in society and even in the church is people will pick one or two of these and then separate from the other side of the church that's emphasizing the other two. These are statements like systemic injustice. The Bible speaks to that because it's a reality. It's a way in which the world is believing these things and promoting them in such a way that it's dehumanizing to our whole world, to our nation, to our cities, to our families, and even to us as individuals. That's true. That's a dimension of sin. Another dimension of sin is the one we know of, individual dimension of sin. This is what the Bible calls the flesh. Now, most of us think about sin only as the bad things we do that we shouldn't be doing. And that's it. But it's got these four dimensions. But even in the individual dimension, there is, and it includes, the things you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, but it also includes the things you should be doing that you aren't doing. It includes the things you consciously know that you're doing bad, and the things that you unconsciously don't know you're doing bad conscious and unconscious sin, co-missionary, which means committing, I'm doing it, and omissionary, the things I'm omitting and not doing. So you see how sin's way more multidimensional than we ever thought? And sin is in the church. Everybody that's been in the church a long time, can I get an amen? Amen, right? Dance in the aisles if you want to, right? Like run through. Yes, there's sin in the church, and there always has been. Read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the people of God are always and have always been faithless. Now, that's not our attempt, and that's not our goal, but we should never be surprised by it, surprised by the fact that there's sin in the church. It isn't our aspiration, and we don't condone it and say it's okay. We call it out so we can turn from it. That's the word repent, but it's in the church. So the four dimensions of sin, cosmic, societal, individual, and ecclesial, Paul clearly understands So, when he says something like, pray that I may have words to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, he's speaking about a full, comprehensive gospel, not just a gospel that pays the penalty for the sins that we commit and know about, but also the sins we omit and don't know about. And... He pays the penalty. The Son of God came into the world, 1 John 3, to destroy the works of the devil, right? He's coming to pay the penalty, save us from the lies and distortion of the devil, from the oppression that the world puts us under at multiple ways. We could list it and list it and list it. He comes to deliver us from that and deliver us from the sins of the church. So the four dimensions of salvation are cosmic, societal, individual, and ecclesial. Now, when Paul in Ephesians 6 says, hey, you need to realize something, the battle that we fight is not a battle of flesh and blood, but it's a battle against the principalities and powers, this reality that the devil's real, this reality that he has angels that are with him called demons, this reality that the world system is strong. So, if we try to wage warfare the way the world wages warfare, it'll turn into eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They call us a fool, we call them fools. They harm our kids, we harm their kids. We begin to operate in the devil's system rather than in the system of Jesus that says, hey, with your enemies, go the extra mile. When they hit you on one cheek, turn to on the other. Don't love those who just love you. Love even your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, though we walk according to the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare aren't of this world, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now let me ask you this. How many of you in here have felt or feel? I should say it this way. Not have felt or feel, have felt and feel. Strongholds. Here's what I mean by strongholds. Strongholds in your life that you feel like, God, I would do anything to change this. But how? Like it feels like when I try to change it, it's a brick wall. I mean, this could be as easy as like working out and eating healthy. Can I get an amen? Amen. I told my wife the other day, I found something that's going to change my life. She said, I've never heard you say that before. Which meant her cynical way of saying, "You've said that like 19 times before." She's not from Missouri, but she's like, "I'm from the Show Me State. Show me, right?" Like, show. But I'm like, "Gosh, this feels like a stronghold to your battle with deep, dark depression." To the realities that you can't sleep in any anxiety. To, "I'm going to fix my finances," or "I'm going to do business a different way," or "I'm going to get involved in love for the least and the most or least vulnerable." I'm no longer going to get angry with my kids, or I'm not going to be snarky with my spouse. Name it. You feel strongholds, right? When we talk politics right now, couldn't this ever change? Ever? And here's what Paul's saying at the end, pray and reveal. If you think about preaching, announcing the gospel, it's revelatory. If the work of the enemy is to lie and he's out to seek and kill and destroy by getting us to believe lies, the revelation or communication and proclamation of what is true helps you to proclaim to yourself, helps you to talk to others about, helps you to sin under on a Sunday-by-Sunday level because the devil doesn't stop lying and distorting. The world doesn't stop communicating things that are the good life that, in fact, aren't the good life. It doesn't stop. So we have to constantly be speaking the gospel. This is why the apostles in Acts 6 give this really good form of they're at this moment, they see people that are really needy, the poor, they see widows that are challenging. And then in Acts chapter six, they say, we need to appoint people to continue to serve, to continue to have eyes for the vulnerable and the voiceless and the hurting and the hungry, for the alienated and ostracized. We have to have that. So they set up whole teams, and they go, the church is about that. We will not forget these people, but we have to continue to pray and to preach. We have to continue to pray and preach. Why? Why in the end do they believe that prayer and proclamation is so powerful? Because God is. Prayer is just simply this moment of like, it's asking and pleading. Here's what I mean by asking is don't get so complicated with prayer that you think like, I got to have this like Shakespearean prose to talk to God. God didn't make you Shakespeare. He might have made you a peasant. Talk like a peasant. If he made you Shakespearean, then talk the way you talk. Here's the bottom line. Be you and talk to God. But here's what he understands. The reason he says perseverance is he understands we struggle. So plead. Plead one of the best prayers you can possibly pray, God help. That's a prayer, right? That's a prayer. And he's sitting there looking at you, Rose, in the midst of your anxiety, that isn't just something that somebody can say to you, stop being anxious. If I could do that, I would have, because this feels awful. Right? is you're in the midst of a panic attack and you're sweating and it feels like there's an elephant sitting on your chest and you're supposed to go do something and all you want to do is face and sit in a corner. God help. And then in that moment, Rose, talk truth to yourself. These moments right now when it's like, I am so scared of the future, I'm so scared of the future and now a panic attack comes upon you and now you're like, I can't even think about the future because I'm so scared I'm going to have another panic attack. So now I'm anxious that I'm anxious, right? Here, remind yourself of this. Even if you've grown up in the church in this simple, simple song, like sing to yourself, he's got the whole world in his hands. This is why the gospel and the word of God is so strong. God is strong and he loves me. We just sang that. Your love is inexhaustible. I don't remember the word that it was, but it extends forever. Nobody knows the height, the depth, the length, the breadth that's in this this book we're reading of Ephesians. Remind yourself of the inexhaustible, incomparable love of God and that he holds the whole world in his hands. Does that mean anxiety is going to go away at this exact moment? No, but it kind of begins to release. Therapists call this cognitive behavioral therapy. Tell yourself true things. The gospel is true truth, it's ultimate truth, it's multi-dimensional truth, it speaks to your anxiety and depression and it speaks to world divisions, it speaks to geopolitical realities and how to rightfully parent your toddler when you feel like you want to throw him through a window. It's all of it. Why? Because God's God and he upholds the universe that he made by the word of his power. In him everything holds together. So, Dan, when you're sitting in depression and you go, people don't know what it's like to live in what feels like 24-7 drowning in darkness, you need the message of Christmas that those who are dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And then you need to go, God, I need to see the great light. Dawn upon me now. You need to be reminded of the reality when everything to you feels like darkness, There is a God who's the light of the world. When you sit there, Susie, and say, I could never get out of my financial mess that I'm ultimately in. You need to pray. God, help me get out of the financial mess that I'm in. Put me around people that will communicate to me the power of the gospel, the multidimensional reality that God saves, not just me from sin, but he saves me now. Because there's many of you in this room, that are like, I've walked the aisle before. I've prayed the prayer. I don't even know when I became a Christian. I'm a Christian. But you need to understand serving and calling and pleading upon God is calling upon a God who is by his very nature A savior. By his very nature. So, if you have moments in your life where, like, I feel the stronghold, or another way to ask the question that I already asked you is how many of you feel like right now, presently, you have something you need to be saved from? A traumatic past, joblessness, your anger, your anxiety, your depression, a family that's horrific in your mind, right? loneliness. Okay, God doesn't just save you from your sin. He saves you from sin that's in the world. So right now, God be my savior. Jonah came to know this. Remember, um, Jonah's the guy who disobeyed God and basically went, I'm gonna commit suicide and just jumped overboard in a boat. And God's like, eh, it ain't that easy. And then this fish swallows him. Remember that? So now he's sitting in the belly of the fish and it's like, everything I just said, he's like, okay, I'm an idiot. So he's feeling regret. He's feeling shame. If you're in the belly of a fish, you're certainly anxious, probably depressed. I mean, there's definitely darkness in the belly of a fish, right? Like, you're going, what in the world? This is what he prays I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble. Now, you know, Jonah was already a Jew. Like, he's a, he's a part of the people of God. I called out to the Lord in my great trouble. He answered me. I called to you, Lord, from the land of the dead. And Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will not look once more towards your holy temple. He goes on, go read it, Jonah 2. And then he says this, why did he call upon the Lord? Why? He says, but I'll offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. This is Jonah 2.9. And I will fulfill all my vows. For my salvation comes from the, lower, from the Lord alone. For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. In Revelation, it says salvation belongs to the Lord. Hear me on this. The gospel's been communicated throughout the ages in a way, in a very simple phrase, Jesus is Lord, the gospel. There are many people then that go, that's not enough, because the gospel is the salvation of sin. But the Lord came. Jesus came. Am I correct? If Jesus comes because God so loved the world, Jesus enters into time and space reality, and he's the Lord. Here's what many of us miss. What Jonah knew and what the author of Revelation is, the Lord is a savior. By is, I mean his very character is one who saves. He can't but be a savior. So when we say help, Jonah says God hears and God moves. Not always in ways that we can see or even ways that we know or certainly ways that we feel, but he is a savior because it's his very character. This is why Paul uses the strong lades to where he says, listen. Pray for people because you, me, we're all struggling. Pray for all the saints. Don't stop praying and reveal to people all the time the truth of who God is and what God has done. And we see this pictured perfectly in the gospel. The power, love, and strength of God and the reality that the Lord saves. So here's my declaration to you and all of us, we have to ask. We have to ask. So right now, I'm gonna invite the team up to sing. We're gonna sing the last song we sang before the interview, before Frank introduced me, and before the message, because it articulates this perfectly. But here's what I'm gonna ask us to do beforehand. I'm gonna ask you guys to pray together. You're like, you just talked about anxiety, being safe from anxiety. I'm gonna have to pray right now. Like, God help me, I hate this, this breeds social anxiety in me. Let me say a couple things. If you're that person right now, or you're in here and you're like, I don't like to pray. Right now, you can look down and just pray to yourself and if you're like, but I'm an atheist. Then just put your head down and talk to yourself. This is really weird, this is really weird. No one will bother you, okay? If you don't want to do it, you can put your head straight down. If you're in a group, don't feel like you even have to talk. But let me say this to all of us in this room. How in the world prayer together ever became weird in a Christian church is one of the reasons we have a form of godliness but are denying its power. Folks, we need God. We don't need songs. We don't need a sermon. We need God. The reason we preach the gospel is to see God. The reason we sing songs is to invite and ask for God. We got to ask for God. Amen? So we're just going to get together. This isn't weird. If unbelievers came into a church, they'd go, I kind of expect them to pray right? So maybe the issue is it feels weird because we don't do it enough. So let's just gather together in groups of three to four. If it's five, I don't care. And let's just start praying and just ask God for God. God, would you just show up? Would you show up as a savior? And maybe you're praying for all the saints. I know there's people in this room that are anxious, depressed. You may name names if you want to name names. Name names. We're going to take a few minutes and pray that prayer. And then we're going to pray another form of prayer in these last few songs. And we're going to come to the table recognizing that Christ is the savior. Amen? All right, let me pray. God, be with us. Come to us now. Meet us in real, tangible, even experiential ways. In Christ's name we pray, amen.